thanks for having me. It's an honor uh, to be here. I've been here a few times um, over the course of the last few years, and uh, it's always a blessing to be back with you. Uh, yeah, I do want to talk about the gospel according to Psalm 23. Uh, when we talk about the gospel, we're using this, this term uh, from, from the Greek, uh, euangelion, euangelion, that's what's translated gospel or good news. E-U, you, like euphoria or eulogy, a good message, angelion, euangelion, the good news. And what is the good news? Well, I think Psalm 23 uh, can give us a little bit of a, a glimpse into the good news that we have through Jesus as we come into God's kingdom. Uh, Sam mentioned I went to USC. Sorry for those of you who uh, went elsewhere. I hope you can bear with me. But I want to actually tell a little story. One day I was uh, taking a philosophy class from one of my Christian professors there. In fact, my only Christian professor, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And Dallas uh, is a, a Christian professor uh, who's done some writing uh, of Christian books and whatnot. You may know of him. But one day after class, uh, Dallas was, was uh, we were waiting around, and a few students were gathered, and I was going to ask Dallas a question. And, and one student before me went up to Dallas and said, I hear you're a Christian. And Dallas said, yes, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. He said, how can you be a philosopher and be a Christian? And you could tell from the tone of this student's voice that he thought there was something contradictory about being a philosopher and being a Christian. You could also tell that, that the problem was the Christian part, not the philosopher part. That if, if one of the two things needed to drop out, it was the Christian part. And I can never forget what Dallas said. I've been thinking about it ever since. So this student says, how can you be a philosopher and be a Christian, and Dallas's response was, what else did you have in mind? What else did you have in mind? And that wasn't meant to be a, a put-down or a, a smack-down. It was really an invitation to this young man. He was really asking him, what, what way of life do you engage in? Who do you follow if you don't follow Jesus. It was really an invitation for this young man to talk to Dallas about how he envisions his life. See, Dallas believed that Jesus had the best answers to the fundamental questions of human existence. You know, what is ultimately real? What is true? What does it mean to be a good person and live a good life? Dallas thought that Jesus had the best answers to those questions. In fact, this quote I have up there, you lead people to become disciples of Jesus by ravishing them with a vision of life in the kingdom of the heavens in the fellowship of Jesus. And my question for us today is, do we have a vision of life with Christ that is so beautifully compelling that person's want to know about Jesus? I'm not asking whether we embody that vision, that's an important question, but do we even have a vision that life with Jesus is so ravishing that we want that kind of life and others would want that kind of life? Uh, there was a study that was uh, published not too long ago and uh, one of the titles said, America's greatest gospel opportunity lives in your home. Uh, this uh, research group did a study 
of the declining numbers of Christians in North America. Perhaps you've heard about this, but the numbers of Christians in North America right now and for the last few years are on a steep and steady decline. That's not only uh, not as many people coming to Christ as in previous decades, but more and more people who once affiliated with Christianity are leaving the faith. And so this organization uh, conducted a study and they said, if, if these trends continue, if, if, the, if the decline of Christians in the U.S. continues at the same rate it's going now, the same level of decline, in, in 30 years, they determined, 30 to 40 million people in the U.S., 30 to 40 million young people in the U.S. who currently dwell in self-identified Christian homes, 30 to 40 million of those young people in 30 years will no longer identify with Christianity. They will have walked away from their faith. And you say, well, hold it. What's the, the, the largest gospel opportunity in the history of America then? What's the, that sounds like bad news, not good news. Well, what they, what they uh, determined is if, that we can if we can return conversion rates to what they were just 15 years ago, so if we, can, if we can stem that decline to just the rates of people coming and remaining with Christ that were, that were true in U.S. just 15 years ago, then those 30 to 40 million people who will walk away in the next 30 years, 20 million of those won't walk away. If, if the rates of decline can go back to what they were 15 years ago, 20 million of those 30 to 40 million who will walk away won't walk away. And they're calling this the greatest, largest gospel opportunity in the history of America. Why? Because 20 million conversions over the next 30 years would be more people coming to Christ than all of the revival movements in the history of the U.S., including the Billy Graham crusade. 20 million conversions would be the largest mass conversion in the history of the North American church. And so the, the takeaway point here is that the greatest opportunity for the gospel actually lives in a lot of our homes, sleeps in the beds in the rooms down the hall from you, or the greatest opportunity for the gospel are those kids who are out here in your Sunday school rooms. Of course, all people need to hear about Jesus, but we're, we're, we're in a period of time in the church where a lot of folks are walking away, and a lot of folks who have been exposed to Jesus aren't staying with Jesus. And so I wonder, do we have a vision of life with Jesus that is so compelling, so ravishing, that our young people will want to stay with Jesus in the next 20, 30 years? And this is where I think the gospel according to Psalm 23 can help. So if you, uh, if you have a Bible or uh, Psalm 23 is printed in your bulletin too, uh, take a look at the text with me. I just want to spend some time with this text. We've got to be careful with Psalm 23. It's uh, probably the most famous and well-known passages in the entire Bible. Uh, we might know it too well. And uh, we don't know for sure when David wrote this psalm, but many commentators think that it was written while he was fleeing from his son Absalom. If you know this story, Absalom is one of David's sons, and, and Absalom decides he wants the throne. And so he gathers an army, and he basically runs David out of, the of, of, of his palace. 
and David is on the run. He's, he's on the run a lot from Saul and now from his own son. I mean, talk about teenage rebellion here. His son wants to kill him and take his throne. And David's on the run, and he writes these words. He prays these words. He, he sings these words. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, David does this a lot in his poetry. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my fortress. Here he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, the almighty one, the highest one, David is saying is like one of the lowliest ones. Yahweh is not my rock, not my light here, not my fortress, not my strong tower. Yahweh is my shepherd. The, the imagery is, is the idea that, that Yahweh, God, has taken responsibility for his people like a shepherd takes responsibility for these weak, vulnerable sheep. David is asking us in this psalm to, to consider our view of God. Do we have an understanding of God that he has taken responsibility for our well-being, for our care? Psalm 95 says, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his hand. And I want us to think about Psalm 23 as, a, as an invitation this morning. You know, sometimes we come to scripture as something we have to believe whether we want to or not. Something we have to take on whether we like it or not. But one way to think about scripture, particularly the Psalms, it's, is there an invitation to us? Invitations are kind of interesting because invitations uh, give us the opportunity to respond. Here's an invitation where they gave various uh, options here, you know, glad to attend, regretfully decline, resentfully attend. You've ever been to one of those? Uh, kind of, uh, enthusiastically decline, I really don't want to be there. Or this is, this is what my wife and I often do, right? Uh, we'll decline to respond, but ultimately we'll show up. Uh, a day before, we'll say, did we ever? Or, I don't think we did. Well, we're going to go anyway, and they'll have to find more food. I, I know it's, it's horrible. But see, Scripture as an invitation gives us the opportunity to say, sounds good, David. Sounds good, God, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Really? That's a wonderful invitation, but is that really your life, David? And so when we think of Scripture as an invitation, it, it invites us to say, where am I at with this vision? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. The sense David have here is everything he truly needs is taken care of. This isn't the prosperity gospel, as we're going to find out as we go through the psalm. It's not that everything is going well. Remember, David is being hunted by his son. This is a painful moment in David's life, where, where one of your children is literally trying to kill you. And David is on the run, and he says, even in the midst of this, the Lord is going to take care of me, and, and I really don't have any needs with him. And so that as, as God invites us to consider this, this vision of, of life with him, one of the things I want to ask is, how, how did David get to this place? How did he get to this place where the Lord is his shepherd and he has no needs? He is taken care of. And it looks like part of it is that he gets there 
because he's experienced God's provision. He goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is still that imagery of the sheep, right? He restores my soul. I'm told that when a sheep lies down, it means the sheep is well fed. That sheep don't lie down until they're not hungry anymore. So this image is, he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's the image of this sheep that's content, and, and it's surrounded by green pastures. It's not hungry, and it knows when it gets hungry, there's plenty of food around. So David has experienced provision. He's experienced the Lord taking care of him like a sheep being led in good places. He's, he's been led by still waters, waters that are refreshing and nourishing, but not dangerous. Uh, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Really, the tr better translation there is he leads me in the right paths. He's a good shepherd who knows the best way to get from point A to point B. He leads me in the right paths because of his name's sake or because of who he is. That's just the kind of person he is. But it's not just because everything goes well for David. He goes on to say that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, here David is not in the green pastures. He's not beside the still waters. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. This is a dark place. This is a place where you think you might die. This is a place where people have died. And David says, even when I'm walking through those valleys, even when I'm, when I'm vulnerable, even when I'm susceptible to harm, even when I'm in a tough place, now notice what he says. It's not everything will go my way. It's not no evil will befall me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? I will fear no evil. It's not that God's shepherding makes it the case that no evil befalls us. It's not that we won't go through the valley of the shadow of death. No, no, we will. Some of you are in a valley right now. Probably in some way we are all in a valley to some degree. And the promise here isn't that with God on our side, everything will go our way. But what does David say? Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice something about the language here. When he's talking about, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He's talking about God in the third person. He makes me lie down. But what does he do here? Even though I walk through the valley of shadow, I will, for you are with me. He changes to second person. In the valley, it's not talking about God and his provision. It's saying, God, you're with me. You're here, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think it's important to really think about this. That with the Lord with us, we have nothing to ultimately fear. First John says that perfect love drives out fear. And if you think about it, it, it really would, wouldn't it? If we could really come to grips with the fact that we are perfectly loved by a perfect God. What would we have to be fearful of? Again, it's not that things will always go our way. It's that even when they don't go our way, we're still perfectly loved. Now, I'm not fully there yet. See, this is an invitation. 
So I say to that, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to live into that. But David got there. He got to this place where he had experienced the provision of God to such a degree that even when the lights go out, even when he's in the valley of the shadow of death, he fears no evil, for the Lord is with him. There's this uh, quote by a commentator on the Psalms, a guy named Walter Brueggemann. And he says this, it is God's companionship that transforms every situation. Does not mean there are no deathly valleys, no enemies, but they are not capable of hurt. And so the powerful loyalty and solidarity of Yahweh comfort, precisely in situations of threat. For one whose life has been transformed by such solidarity with God, a life of worshipful praise is a crown for time to come, a safe place in which to live for now. Psalm 23 knows that evil is present in the world, but it is not feared. Confidence in God is the source of new orientation. David goes on to say, he moves uh, away from this imagery of the sheep and the shepherd, and he moves to the imagery in the, in the remainder of the psalm of the banquet table. So it's not just that God provides for him in the good times, in the green pastures. It's not just that God is with him in the dark valleys. But then he goes on to say, even when he's surrounded by enemies, right? Verse 5, you prepare a table before me. You prepare a feast before me even when I'm surrounded by my enemies. Uh, he has the banquet in mind here. You anoint my head with oil. That's, that's the, the anointing of oil was the honored guest at the banquet. You, my cup overflows. The imagery here is, is an overflowing cup of wine. And in the ancient Jewish world, if you had a banquet, you would take your honored guest and you'd overfill his cup of wine until the wine spilled over. And it was meant to symbolize that there's more than enough provision for you. You can stay as long as you want. We have so much wine, I will overfill your cup until it overflows. So David's saying, even when I'm surrounded by enemies, you nourish me. You take care of me. There's enough in the kingdom of God. And then he just goes on in verse 6. He says, surely God's goodness and mercy, this, this steadfast love, will follow me every single day of my life. See, David has this vision that, that God's goodness and mercy are just always around him. He's hemmed in by the goodness and mercy of God every day of his life. And really what he's looking at here is, and when I die, then I'll just dwell in the courts of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That when my life comes to an end, God will just take me his steadfast mercy, his goodness will take me right into his house forever and ever. This is a vision of life in God's kingdom. A compelling vision of the goodness of God and of life with him. Jesus, in a very real way, owns this for himself in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This vision 
of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus says, I'm that shepherd. This is what life can be like with me. But again, I want to return to that question of, of how did David get there? Because there's another famous psalm right before this one, Psalm 22. David wrote that one too. You know how that one starts out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, David had to go through Psalm 22 to get to Psalm 23. We can't just will ourselves into Psalm 23. David had to grow into this. So I want to I reflect on two things as we close. How did David get there? The first thing I want to suggest is that David doesn't seem to have had anything else in mind. Remember Dallas Willard's response. What else did you have in mind? It looks like here David didn't have anything else in mind. His life was about Yahweh comfort. His life was about being led by the good shepherd. And so I think we need to ask ourselves what else do I have in mind? Do I really want this kind of life, or do I have some other way in mind? Is my response to the invitation, sounds like a great party, I'd love to come, but I think I'm going to try a few other parties first. And again, if that is the honest assessment of where we are at, then God wants to know that. So the first place is that David was honest about where he was at with this vision. Am I really enthralled with Jesus or only prepared to put up with him? Again, quoting Dallas Willard, the reality is that most of religion, he means Christianity, is organized around keeping God at a distance, allowing us to go see him when we want. We say things such as, Lord, this morning we come into your presence, to which God might be saying, really? Where have you been? For he's always been present. Do I really want this way of life, or do I have something else in mind? Perhaps this is what you want above all else. And so you just confess that to the Lord. Perhaps you're like the rich young ruler, and you say, you know, it sounds good, but I think I'll, I'll come back later. Or perhaps you're like that man who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want it. Help the parts of me that don't want it. They're not ready for it. The second thing I want to say is, how did David get here, is that David psalmed his way into this kind of life. He psalmed or prayed or sung his way. We see in the Psalms that David lamented, he praised, he confessed, he thanked God. All the way into the green pastures and through the dark valleys and through being surrounded by his enemies, through every day of his life all the way up to the day he died. He psalmed his way in. He, he practiced the presence of God no matter what he was going through. So here's my question for us. What are we doing? What am I doing? What are you doing on a daily basis to bring the range of our experience, our anger, our fear, our sadness, our ambivalence, our anticipation, our worry, our confusion, our gratitude into conversation with the Good Shepherd? The way into this life that the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want is to also be willing to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's to be willing to confess and rejoice and express gratitude for the times that God does show up, but to lament the times where he doesn't seem present. So I want to leave us with a challenge this morning. 
really two challenges. One is to commit once again, or perhaps for the first time, to Jesus and say, Lord, I want you to be my good shepherd. I want to live my life following after you. And then second is to say, what, what is, what's a way this week? What's a way this day that I can bring more of my experience to the Lord in prayer? And one way to do that, quite frankly, is through the Psalms. And one Psalm to start with, if you need a start, is Psalm 23. And you just might want to cut out that psalm from your little bulletin here since they printed it out for us so nicely. You know, just cut it out. Put it on the dashboard of your car. or Glue it to your mirror in the morning. Put it someplace where you're going to see it every day and just start to pray through Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And talk to God about it. It's an invitation. Lord, I'm not feeling that today. Lord, I want you to be my good shepherd, but I've got other things in mind. I don't like your shepherding God. I feel like you've forsaken me. And use Psalm 23 as a way to bring yourself before the Lord. And as we do that time and time again, pretty soon this vision will begin to sink into our bones. And we'll begin to experience life more like David did. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. We need you, Lord. We need your shepherding. We need more of you in our lives. Help us to open ourselves to you in honest prayer, in confession, in gratitude, in praise, in lament. Lord, help us to find those green pastures when we need them. Help us to find your rod and your staff when we go through the valleys. Lord, help us to find your nourishment when we feel surrounded by enemies. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives.